Hello and welcome to the Poplar Propcast. I'm your host, Justin Libernet. Today we're going to be wrapping up part three of the HVAC discussion. Uh, we've already talked about the history of air conditioning. We've talked about the history of heating. Now we're going to talk about the current state and the future of all of these. And the future gets really interesting because there's a lot of stuff going on to really accelerate that change. The changes that we've seen in the past come through in kind of incremental ways. There's these little little changes that then get propagated through the system, and all of a sudden you have um, the compression cooling is happening, the circulation of air for heating changes how they do it, the source of power for these things changes. But they're all these little kind of steps. And what we're seeing now is there's a big stack of technologies that are sitting right in reach and with the passage of the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is, it's not the best name because it's got a lot of stuff in there. But with the passage of that act, there's a lot of incentives and money in there that building owners can take advantage of to make their properties more energy efficient. And a lot of those are related to heating and cooling. The reason for that is, is that it's such a large portion of the energy consumption. Um, there's a... Department of Energy report from 2014. It's the Research and Development Roadmap for Emerging HVAC Technologies. It's really worth taking a look at, but it will explain why this is the important part. Um, it looks and it breaks down the primary energy consumption in U.S. buildings, which U.S. building, both commercial and residential, is responsible for a huge amount of consumption of energy in the U.S. The couple of terms you'll need to know for this. Um, one is uh, quads. A quad is one quadrillion British thermal units. Uh, and having said that, the next question you'll probably have is what's, what's a British thermal unit? A British thermal unit is the amount of energy it takes to raise the temperature of one pound of water by one degree Fahrenheit at a standard atmosphere. Long story short, this has been a standard for a long time. It's not in the metric system. The metric system is the joule, and that's the a different thing. It's about 1,055 joules is one BTU. But BTU has been used so long that it continues to be used for comparison across different periods and, and ages. It's kind of like how the U.S. still uses Fahrenheit, and England still measures people's weight in stone. The British thermal unit is how we talk about energy in the United States. The quad is a quadrillion British thermal units. And so the energy used to make a quad depends on what the source is. So you're going to need about 8 billion, 7 million gallons of gas to get a quad, uh, 293, 293 billion 71 million kilowatt hours, uh, 293 terawatt hours, uh, 33.434 gigawatt years, 36 million tons of coal, 970 billion cubic feet of natural gas, uh, 5 billion UK gallons of diesel oil, 25 million tons of oil, 250 million tons of TNT, or five times the energy of the Tsar Bomba nuclear test, which was the largest nuclear test ever done. Tsar Bomba, the Russians blew up a giant nuclear bomb. And five Tsar Bombas is one quad. 12.69 uh, tons of uranium-235, or six seconds of sunlight reaching Earth. 
So all those different measurements are interesting, but I think the two that really give you an idea of the scale and where the future of this is going is one, Tsar Bomba nuclear test was, it was crazy. It was called AN-602, is the most powerful nuclear weapon ever created and tested. It had new design principles. It was dropped by parachute. It detonated 13,000 feet above the earth and it was monitored around the world. Uh, the bomb yielded about 58 megatons, which was the accepted yield, and Soviet scientists said their instrument said 50 megatons. Point of this, this was easily the largest man-made explosion ever, and it was felt around the world. It was a, a giant, giant mushroom cloud. The fireball was about five miles wide. Uh, it was prevented from touching ground by the shockwave, but it reached nearly six and a half miles in the sky. It, it's just a terrifyingly massive uh, bomb. The flare from it was visible 620 miles away in Norway, Greenland, and Alaska. The mushroom cloud was 42 miles high. The diameter of the upper tier was about 59 miles. The lower tier was 43. The blast wave circled the globe three times, with the first one taking 36 hours. A seismic wave in the Earth's crust circled the globe three times. It was, it was just ridiculous, right? And that amount of energy you would need to have several times over to equal a quad, right? So five tar bombas is one quad. <clears throat> That's fascinating because when you read the, the next one I mentioned, the sunlight reaching Earth, six seconds of sunlight reaching Earth. That's the amount of energy the sun is blasting on us every single day. Now, it's, it's not going to create a shockwave, but that means that almost every 1.2 seconds, the amount of energy that Tsar Bomba consumed is hitting the earth. And you need six seconds of that to hit a quad. Okay, I'm done talking about what a quad is. I'm done talking about what a BTU is. I think you have some idea of the scope, but keep in mind that, that difference, right? Keep in mind that idea of how much sunlight hits the earth because that'll come in here, obviously later for what I'm guessing those of you at home can predict. When we're talking about the total energy consumption in US, U.S. buildings, commercial and residential, in 2010, that's when they used the data for this study, 40 quads in one year total consumed in U.S. buildings. And the three biggest are heating, lighting, and cooling. Heating consumed 7.4 quadrillion. Lighting consumed... 5.2 quads and cooling consumed about 4.1 quads. So you look across those and you see why when they're putting together this roadmap for emerging HVAC technologies, it's really about those two massive consumers. Lighting is its own thing and it has its own people researching different ways to do it. Remember this is in 2010, so LEDs were around but they weren't as prevalent as they are now. The uh, 2010, I mean, I, I had a cathode ray tube monitor still in 2010. I think I'd just gotten an, an LED for the first time right around that time. Maybe maybe seven or eight, but, you know, the technology was still expensive and emerging. LEDs were pretty new to the scene. So that's all changed a bunch already. Heating and cooling has also had quite a bit of change already since 2010. That's 12 years ago. I mean, this report was put out in 2014, so we'll see how far we've come as we talk through this. 
the building technologies office, uh, the people that are looking at this within the Department of Energy and the energy efficiency and renewable energy, they work with researchers across a ton of industries. Like I'll, I'll put a link to this report, but you can also find it at energy.gov. They had everybody from the standard people you'd think about that are talking about buildings, right? So major landholders, people that have a ton of property, um, the U.S. Department of Energy, Oak Ridge National Labs, the Torad Engineering, Carrier, the people that make air conditioners, um, National Renewable Energy Lab, the Southern Company, Booz Allen Hamilton. It even had, and this was surprising, uh, Coca-Cola was one of the advisors on here. So it's, it's interesting how broad they reached. The overall goal here that the Building Technologies Office wants to do is to reduce building-related primary energy consumption by 50% in the year 2030 relative to 2010 consumption. Specifically for heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, BTO identified primary energy savings targets of 12% by 2020 and 24% by 2030. So this roadmap that they put together, it talks through all the ideas that could do that. It also talks about ways to um, incentivize that, how you get people to actually do it. They did a whole lot of one-on-one issues, and then they had a whole lot of researchers and scientists kind of looking what's possible, and they had key themes, right? So they want to build in tolerance for system misapplication, in order, in other words, the ability to accommodate for oversizing without hurting performance. So if you put the wrong thing in, you still want it to perform as efficiently as possible instead of just being overkill. Um, you got to recognize that each building is a unique system, and they can vary widely in their operating characteristics and requirements. You envision what retrofits like in 2050. So how do you plan for future changes so that when technology advances, you can swap parts out instead of having to replace everything or just reducing maintenance and replacement costs. You want to emphasize peak demand mitigation right now. And for a long time, that's been the the duck curve is the way they talk about it. But if you look at power consumption, it drops during the day when people are at work and school, and then it spikes when everybody gets home and turns on their AC or their heater and everything else in their house, right? So you're going from this concentrated, efficient buildings to everybody going home to wherever they live and turning stuff on. The pandemic has changed quite a bit of that. Um, the duck curve is a little bit different. The last one is to optimize components for alternative refrigerant systems, given that the transition to low global warming potential refrigerants will be a prominent driver of technological change. This is switching from CFCs and HFCs and something that we've already started doing and come quite a long way towards. To talk for a minute about how these different things happen, some of them happen at the level of government or power grid control. Uh, a low-tech example of that, and surprising because text and Twitter is not super low-tech. It's pretty cool. In California, when they had a heat wave, and it was possibly their largest energy consumption that they'd ever seen in the state, and it was going to tax the power grid, the energy companies there texted people and said, hey, to keep from having brownouts, to keep from having blackouts, let's drop our temperature on our thermostats by like two degrees. You know, not crazy. Instead of being... Uh, excuse me, raise your temperature, I guess, on your thermostat. But instead of setting your thermostat at 69 or 70, you set it at 72 or 73 or maybe even 74. So you're comfortable. You're just not chilling yourself out. And it worked really well. It was actually able to mitigate and keep from having blackouts and brownouts. So that's a governmental and 
institutional way of doing that. Uh, the other place that it's changing is in building codes. California is the first state to mandate solar panels on new construction. That's coming online pretty soon. And if you build a new house, you got to put solar on it. <laughs> so let's cycle back around and out of that bit and talk about actual HVAC, how it affects owners, how it affects renters, and how it affects investors. Because this is one of the places where the incentives are specifically misaligned, not intentionally, just in the way that it operates. One of the easiest ways to think about this is that if you are a renter looking for a property and you see two properties next to each other, and one, and they're exactly the same in almost every respect, they're both three bedroom, two bath, they both have same size yard, they're both a two car garage, they're within a block of each other. Hell, they could be on the same block. So it's same floor plan, same yard, same street, same access to schools. Everything's the same. But one has solar panel and the other one doesn't. The one with solar panel on is probably going to be an extra 100 bucks, 200 bucks a month because they have to make back that investment into the solar panel. At the same time, though, you don't have an electric bill until you hit a whole, a really high usage of electricity. But how do you measure that? And then how does that come into play when the rental organization is asking for three times monthly rent to qualify as your income, right? So all of a sudden it's offset because on one of those houses, you can qualify for it with three times rental income, but that extra 600 bucks may kick you out of the ballpark for it because of the solar panels. But you're still going to have to pay that anyway. You're just paying it to the electric company. Right, so that, that's what I mean by the misalignment. So then the renter has an incentive to rent the house that's cheaper because it's easier to qualify for, and it also looks like a better deal, though it may not be. So the landlord or the owner doesn't have an incentive to install solar on a rental unit because it's really hard to stay in the price brackets that people search when you've got to add on a couple hundred dollars for the solar panels. A note on this, it is possible to switch that and do it as like an add-on afterwards. But with all the way fees work, having an added fee into the lease that's actually for energy can get pretty funky. For a while in North Carolina, you couldn't pass on energy costs. If you were the landlord paying for power and you recharged your residence for power, you'd get in trouble because they said you can't do that because then you're a power reseller. And power resellers have specific rules. So some of this stuff kind of gets in the way of looking towards the future. Okay, that's an example because I want, I want all these things to be in your mind, right? The, the massive heat load, or excuse me, the massive energy load in quads that are being consumed by heating. The massive load in quads that are being consumed by cooling. The regulatory issues around the other side. How things are kind of disincentivized to set up new and innovative ways to conserve energy. Keep all that in mind. And then we're going to talk through the cool stuff that's happening and could be the future of construction and the future of energy consumption. The key point here is that almost all of these proposals that come out of the Department of Energy's um, Building Technologies Office really look towards energy efficiency, sustainable technology, and microcontrolling, right? So the more advanced systems that heat and cool individual rooms or areas within a home rather than one system that keeps the whole house one temperature. This really comes around with smart technology, thermostats and registers, individual room control from those, 
and then the efficiency on the other side. So let's talk about what that looks like. Smart thermostats are not new. They are intriguing, but right now they're still quite a bit more expensive than a classic mercury switch thermometer. It has this little coil inside of it that expands when it gets warm, contracts when it gets cold, and you can change the tilt of it, and that's how you're actually changing the temperature inside of that. So it'll it'll bump that mercury switch at different temperatures. Super, super, super simple mechanical technology that is cheap, and they're in a lot of older homes. The next step up from that is a digital thermostat. Now notice, not, I'm not saying a smart thermostat, I'm just saying a digital thermostat. This one's not connected to the internet, it's not gonna talk to your phone, it's not gonna respond to Alexa or Google Home or your Apple devices. What it is gonna do though, is let you set timers so that the heat and cooling goes on and off at certain times. It's gonna let you set temperatures for different seasons, it's gonna let you set temperatures for different times of day. And so it has a lot more control, and these can increase the efficiency of your heating and air conditioning units. And the reason that happens is if you think about the way we use our buildings, when we're not in them, and that happens for a lot of us, Monday through Friday, nine to five, um, less of us now than previously, um, you don't need it to be as cool or as warm. When it's nighttime, there's only a few rooms you're in. The living room and the kitchen and the dining room probably don't need to have their climate controlled. So if you have a digital thermostat, say you have two that have two different zones, you can start setting them. So at night, the temperature is more efficient. You, you can set it when you're running the AC at nighttime instead of it being at 69 everywhere. You can set it to be 75 in the rooms and spaces you're not using and 69 or 70 in the rooms you are using. Um, same thing for heat in the other direction. You can set it for you know, 69, 70 degrees in the rooms you are using and 65 in the rooms you aren't using. And that happens both when you're gone and when you're sleeping. So you start getting the cycle and you get these, these little increases in efficiency that add up over the course of the year. The next step up from that is the what we have pretty, I'm not gonna say pretty common, but I'm gonna say probably everybody knows about them. Um, I don't think they've overtaken digital thermostats and classic thermostats, but that's smart thermostats. So that's things like um, Nest and Ecobee. And there's a couple of companies that have these thermostats that are pretty cool because they talk to your phone, they look at the weather outside. Some of them have sensors that tell if you're home or away. And by combining all of those things, and knowing how the system works, and by system I mean the, the HVAC system. These, a lot of these smart um, thermostats can watch how it's running, how effective it is, and then pre-cool, pre-heat, and get the temperature to stay steady in very interesting ways with, with algorithms and the internet and input from the owner. And then they have systems like the Nest has these where it'll reward you leafs when you're being really efficient. The other thing that's nice about these is that they have enough data on the back end to compare your use to other homes that are similar to you. Uh, so all these things kind of go to the point where, cool, now not only can I try to be more efficient, but I'm tracking how efficient I am and I can more clearly see what the long-term benefits are of that. Now, putting Nest's 
we'll, we'll use them for this conversation just so we're still talking about the same thing. But putting nests into your home is a little bit more expensive. They range in price from $150, maybe even $100 on sale, to $250 for the ones that are have more features and work with more HVAC systems. If you have an older HVAC system, you also may have the issue that you're going to have to charge that nest occasionally because it doesn't have power to it like there's all kinds of things that kind of sneak up on this and go okay well that's going to make it more complicated and as an owner with a tenant in there you have to figure out a way to either make it worry free or on the other side make it so that it's their responsibility but if you make it their responsibility as a renter maybe they just want to use a digital or even a dumb thermostat and not have to think about it just set it and forget it And as we move forward and start looking at these systems, what's going to happen is they're going to become lower touch. And by lower touch, I mean they're going to need less work to figure out what's going on. You can kind of put them in and tell them what temperature you're most comfortable at. And then it will tell what rooms you're in and what your pattern is. And then kind of build the profile of that house to your behaviors. And that makes it a lot more efficient with you doing as little as possible. There are... Mild privacy arguments about this where if somebody was able to get in the back end and see your schedule and know when you're usually not home, well, great. That's when I'm going to go rob the house. But to be fair to the companies, and I think this is important, that's not a huge worry in this space. That's not a huge delta that's likely to happen. It's actually a lot easier for somebody that wants to rob your house to sit down the street and wait for your car to leave and then come and try. (laughs) There's... There's really dumb ways for crooks to try and figure that out rather than spending all the time and energy trying to hack the system and figure out your behaviors. There's also a lot of these that keep all of that behavior local to the the nests that are at in your house and on your network. So there's all kinds of ways to solve for that. That's not a huge issue in my opinion. Um, but as you're tracking all these things, the other piece that comes in is a lot of people have one or two zone systems. So you have an upstairs and a downstairs. You have a, uh, if you have a single story building that's like three, two, you may have one HVAC that runs the whole thing. You may have a heating system that's separate from your cooling system and different thermostats for them. There's all these complications on that, but one of the ways to make each room its own little cubby of efficiency is something that's just starting to come to market called smart registers. Now the register is that thing that's in the ceiling or the floor that the heat and the air conditioning comes out of. It's where the 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 heated or conditioned air comes back into the room. Now the way a smart register works is it has a sensor in the room that it's in and it watches the temperature in that room and when the temperature hits the optimal temperature for that room, it will close the register. That's all. It's a simple, uh, in the same way that right now you can close the register or divert the air by moving the little paddle on the side of it. This is something that's built into it and it'll, it'll open and close it depending on the heating or cooling needs of the room. They are not yet fully integrated into the thermostats themselves. And there can be some problems here where if the registers are set to a different temperature than the thermostat is, they could block the air and make it so the system's not actually flowing air anywhere. Um, there's solutions here too. But I think smart registers and smart thermostats coupled together to kind of take care of the rooms that need heating and cooling in the rooms that don't, 
like right now in my house, I'm in my office and I don't need the living room to be a comfortable temperature until later on at lunchtime when I go down there to have a snack. So you can have different temperatures. The savings from this have a huge potential. It's a massive way to make the HVAC more efficient with existing systems merely by managing the flow, right? So this is this is step one of efficiency for HVAC is turning it off and on and turning it off and on in the most efficient way possible. Let's talk about the next bit, which is the HVAC systems themselves. We talked a little bit about the last... Uh, piece when we're talking about air conditioning and heating about heat pumps. Heat pumps are phenomenal in their efficiency. It's one watt of power can get you three watts of heating or three watts of cooling because it's just moving it around. Problematically, they only work when it's um, above about 50, 53 degrees, which is like, uh, what is that? That's about 10 Celsius. Um, so when you're looking at that heat pump, a lot of times you're going to have to have a secondary source for heat when you're in a cold environment. So that's a given and that's a limitation on heat pumps. But for most of the year when the temperature is above 50, heat pumps are wicked efficient. Uh, because they're so efficient, there are uh, incentives and pieces out there to help in it. Even in that Department of Energy report I was talking about, they specifically never refer just to an AC. They always refer to AC and heat pump. Um, one of their initiatives is develop technologies to raise heat pump performance across all fuels at low ambient temperature. Consider elimination of defrost and backup heat sources to improve the application of CCHPs, closed circuit heat pumps. It's this great system that can be used to just move heat inside and outside the house. It doesn't use nearly as much energy to be as efficient. So they're, they're going to be seen more and more. And if they can improve the technology where they don't freeze and they can work at lower temperature great then it doesn't matter where the energy is coming from as much as it matters how it's being moved one of the reasons i say it like that is because with a heat pump when you're heating up you're not burning propane you're not burning oil you're not burning wood you're not burning coal in your house you extremely decrease your reliance on those and it runs off electricity and we're going to talk in just a second about electricity and how its source can become more efficient. Um, there's there's a lot of stuff in this report that really chases this, but I really think that the heat pump is one of the key pieces for heating and cooling in the future. There are some dual units that are both air conditioners and heat pumps. There are some dual units that are gas furnaces and heat pumps. There's some that are just standalone different components to the same system. So there's a lot of neat stuff there. Um, they definitely have a place in this, but again, as an owner and as a landlord, how do you offset this cost? And I think for this one, it's a little bit easier because for the heat pump, next time you have to replace your air conditioner or check out your heating, venting, and air conditioning system, which is probably 20 years, 12 to 20 years is about how long some of these last. When you're looking at it to upgrade and you look around there are going to be incentives to replace with heat pump and energy efficient ACs rather than a straight AC heater. And the places where this is going to be most effective are a lot of the places where we've seen a ton of population growth. So the Southwest, where it freezes very rarely, 
you don't have any uh, parts of the season where you're under you know 32 and have a hard freeze for more than an hour or so. So for 90% of the year, all you need is a heat pump. There's no need to have additional heat. And when it's it's hot outside, nobody's running the air conditioning. If they're all heat pumps instead, you've got a huge savings in energy spend. So I think this one, as an owner, when you go to look at your next HVAC replacement, check out the incentives in your area. Check out what your local energy department is doing and see if there's a way to do a heat pump instead of a pure AC and heat unit. I think there's a huge opportunity there, and that's the one that makes the most sense. The next piece of future HVAC efficiency is around how homes are built. We were talking a little bit about insulation and how insulation works. And one of the biggest modifiers we've had in the last 20 years is dual pane windows. Like it's crazy how inefficient glass is. It directly transfers heat and cold in and out and tries to stabilize. So by putting in these dual pane windows with this inert gas inside of them, you massively increase the efficiency of windows, even though it's still one of the worst leaking spots for your uh, building's envelope, which is the enclosure. But I like being able to see outside and I like natural light and it's saving me on lighting costs at the same time. So I don't know. I don't know how that one rolls out. I do think they're going to continue to figure out new ways to be more efficient in their window building. I know that they've eliminated metal in a lot of the frames because it transmits a lot of energy in and out. And they go with, um, th there's both the plastic and vinyl, and then there's the, like a fiberglass kind of material, but there's different kinds of material that they frame up the windows with now that are better at holding temperatures in and out. There are a couple of guys going to the extreme with this. And if you go check out YouTube and look for, uh, look for these builders, you'll find them. But one of the things they do is they build double walls. They dig the house like five feet into the ground. And there are some houses that have been built where the envelope is so efficient that in any given year, they use the same amount of energy as a toaster to provide all the heating and cooling the property needs. So they've basically made it so that whatever the temperature inside is, it stays that way. There's there's no real effective heat loss and heat gain from the envelope, which is crazy. So that's an extreme example, but I think the low lift version of that, and this is something that residents might want to do since you're responsible for the heating and air conditioning bill anyway, is to do an energy audit on your house. Look around and see if there are gaps underneath the door, if there are gaps in windows, if there is very little insulation in the attic, and then go to your landlord, talk to him and go, hey, these are some things that I think we might wanna look at. Because those same gaps that let in heat and let out cold air and let out hot air, those are the same places that bugs can get in. Those are the same places that water can get in. So it's it's protecting the asset for both of you to work together to take care of those. So that's on efficiency of the home. As builders build new homes, they integrate a lot of the new strategies into this. But with the way that costs of materials are rising, there's, you know, it, it changes. The priorities change and there's still the, the profitability motive in all of this. So there's, there's even framing strategies where you minimize the number of beams so that the wood isn't transferring heat because wood transfers energy a lot better than the uh, insulation and batting does. So it, there's all kinds of strategies. The 
standard of care though is going to have to change for those to really be adopted in the building portion. So that's that one's probably not likely for existing residences or even residences in build right now. That's going to have to have a change to building code and a change to zoning to allow them. The last piece to talk about here for efficiency of HVAC and kind of changing everything is the energy source. And this is what I was referring to earlier is that I, I as we see more and more um, solar panels being put on houses, more efficient solar panels, there's research underway that turns windows into solar panels. You've got Tesla's solar roof. You've got all these different ways to create energy from that six seconds of sun that's equal to five Sarbambas or one quad. So, I mean, think about that, right? So 40 quads is the heating and cooling in the USA. The USA is getting, it's not going to get a full quad in uh, six seconds. Um, but if we can tap the energy that's coming down from the sun and instead of waiting for it to turn into coal or oil or gas or natural gas and instead just catch it, all of a sudden we're being wicked efficient. We've taken a whole bunch of stages and steps out of this. And so putting those on a house can just drastically reduce an electric bill. If we can find a way to align incentives there and make it so that the renter and the owner have a reason to do it, it's great because the owners of properties are usually the ones that have the capital to make these investments in the underlying asset, but they want to be able to see the return. As an owner of a house, there's a huge incentive to do it, but the initial capital is difficult, right? So there's a lot of loans and buybacks. They're not great though. The ones that are greater, if you can spend the 25 grand, 20 to 30 grand on having solar panels installed on your house, in a place like Arizona, Nevada, or California, you're gonna see that return back in five to 10 years. That's insane. I don't know anywhere where you can see that kind of return on your money. And it's a direct return, and after that, you make that much money back every five to 10 years that you aren't spending on your electric bill. It's, it's madness. This should be something that is such a default and such an easy investment. But the problem is it's hard for an owner who's renting the property to recoup that, right? So that's where we've got to figure something out in connection with regulation and government taxes and the way that we bill for um, bill for rent and bill for power. There's got to be some compromise there that can be made because it's a huge opportunity. It's a massive opportunity to kind of put that together. So that's looking at the future of heating, venting, and air conditioning. There's a lot more to be said. We can go into what they want to do in space. We can go into what they're doing with the line where they're building a giant city in the middle of the desert, which is a crazy idea, but it just it just might work. I don't know. That's going to be a weird one. It's a very strange decision to do. But the point there is there's lots of stuff going on from how are we going to stay in temperature on Mars or the moon to what do we do when we want to keep from being exposed to these massive temperature spikes and drops that are coming from climate change. So go out, read the Department of Energy report, try and figure out a way to get solar panels on your rental units. I mean, even if you can get a long-term renter in there that understands how beneficial that is to them, it may be a way to be like, hey, what's your average electric bill? Oh, well, on average, I pay 120 bucks a month. And then in the summer, I pay 200 bucks a month because the AC's on. It's crazy. Go, cool. 
So your average electric bill is 150 bucks. How about I raise your rent by 100 bucks and you never have an electric bill again? And then you have your your money coming back in. It's going to take you a little longer to recoup it, but it's a way to go. It's a way to move forward on this and take advantage of the benefits that are being offered by the government on it in the IRA. Take advantage of state incentives. And there may even be incentives from your energy company to do some of this stuff. So look around. That's the one to compromise on. If you're a renter, go do an energy audit. Take a look around your house. Figure out how you can be more efficient. And if you have the opportunity, when your AC unit or heating unit craps out, take a look at heat pumps. See if there are incentives in your area. And as ever, if you need property management services, you can reach us at poplar.homes slash pod. That's poplar.homes slash pod. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.